0: how you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast since 2006 with the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. We're on air with RTE and online via your favourite podcasting app. We also keep you up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters, uh, which you can grab at our website techcentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief for Bumping
1: Elbows with Niall Kitson. Hello. Yeah, Bumping Elbows. Oh. I I've I've just come from the safety of my bunker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're both working from
0: home and uh, yeah. it's a very um, uh, strange. But listen, we have we have got a great interview on the programme this week. A very positive one, actually. Uh, and one of my favourite quotes from this particular guy is that a leader
1: is a dealer in hope. And, you know, no better a quote to sum up these times. Uh, if you indeed, want to compare indeed. Le- Leo was very good on the telly the other night. He was, and. I as, yeah.
0: As was Macron. I didn't understand a word of what Macron was saying. It was only a clip on the news, but he looked good.
1: Well, there you go. That's half the bottle, isn't it? Boris (laughs) in the UK? Okay, right not, then not, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: okay, let's move on to the tech news of the week, shall we?
0: <laughs> let's talk about Apple. Uh, and actually, speaking of France, uh, there's a story coming out from there. Yeah. It, what is it?
1: What, what I like about the French is they don't, they don't seem to have any fear of big tech. You know, they're quite happy to raid Facebook's office. They're quite happy to levy very large fines. And guess what? Um, France's competition watchdog has gone and levied a very large fine on Apple. Uh, to the tune of 1.1 billion euro, uh, which one imagines will come down on appeal, but still, it's a nice little statement uh, statement of intent. And what it comes down to is Apple has been fined along with two of their wholesalers, one crowd called uh, Tech Data and one called Ingram Micro. And what this comes down to is price control on Apple products. So you know the way that you will go to one place that stocks Apple And another, and another, and another. They'll all have the same price. Yes. Oh, it is very, very difficult to find uh, an offer Mm. price on an Apple product unless it's something that's been reconditioned or, you know, is end of line or something like that. There is absolutely no price variation, um, which I guess speaks to Apple's sort of, but it's so simple. You know, our design is so fresh and unique. You know, it's like our pricing is exactly the same. It is homogenous. It doesn't matter where you go. Um, And as it turns out, that's not particularly good competitive practice. Uh, For example, the way that, you know, loads of places compete on pricing with iPhones, be it mobile phone networks or just handset prices or or what have you. the same isn't true of Macs and MacBooks. Ah,
0: OK. So what you're saying is that Apple then were selective in what they were charging.
1: And they, they were. Yeah, so that's what you're saying. They basically managed to remove competition in the market by limiting who they dealt with to two wholesalers and saying, this is the price. Uh, and you're our guys and that's it and it made it incredibly difficult on resellers this is people that will buy stuff off a wholesaler and then sell it on either as part of a package with a service or something like that uh, like a managed print service or you know kishing out an office and all, all these sort of perks um, that uh, business to business markets would, would have um, just Apple, Apple didn't have those sort of offerings because they were able to just take away that entire tier of deal making from, uh, from the market in France. And I think this is, you know, a statement of intent. If this actually comes through, if Apple end up being fined, this is something that's going to mushroom all over Europe.
0: Well, we've had these things with, with Apple before and then, of course, uh, I mean, Microsoft ended up being such a dominant player in the, in the software mm. and the operating uh, s- system and still are to this day. And I mean, they had all of those antitrust cases and stuff like that. And they were doing, you know, what I suppose any commercial company would do in that, like, you know, OK, well, we're shipping our operating system and we're including the browser and we're not <laughs> going to include our, our competitors' browsers. It makes sense if you were the company. Do you know what I mean? But when you're the company who's it has 98% to the marketplace just because mm. that's how it ended up uh, yeah. you can't do these things so it needs people like France or the EU uh, uh, the EU would do a lot of this kind of stuff to to rein people back in mm. uh, maybe that's what's, what's, what's happening with uh, Apple um, listen uh, other stories in the news this week we do have some good news stories oh my goodness COVID 19 good news stories
1: yeah we just want to sprinkle in things for a little bit of balance because there's a lot of goodness out in the world and it's important to represent that uh, as well as you know, reporting the big scandals of the of the week, or what have you, or, or talking to interesting people. It's you know, there is an awful lot of examples of kindness out there, and people doing very interesting things. Uh, one of which uh, is a company called DMAC, which is a web developer, and they've offered their services free of charge to GPs, healthcare professionals, pharmacies, anyone anyone working in that area. If you need your website updated and you're working in that space. Get on to DMACC, they'll sort you out for free. Uh, another interesting one, which is um, about augmented reality and blended reality, which, is, which I wanted to talk to you about, hmm. is a company called uh, Surewash. They have developed an app for making sure you wash your hands properly. Uh, what trick are you using at the moment to make sure you get your 20 seconds in?
0: Uh, I wash my hands until I'm bored.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, there's going to be a serious law of diminishing returns on that, Dusty.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I wash my hands normally and then I, I wash my hands just longer uh, until I'm bored and then I go, I, I don't do this like singing Staying Alive or Happy Birthday or counting 20 seconds
1: or, or whatever. Really? You 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 fly by the seat of your pants when it comes to uh, washing your hands? It
0: all depends where I've been. because I mean, I'm working at home, so I'm in my yeah. own house. Nobody's mm-hmm. coming in. Nobody's going out. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you know kind of a normal every day if I was out somewhere or if I had mm-hmm. been in a workplace or if somebody sneezed on my hands mm-hmm. yeah, you'd be darn sure <laughs> I'd be oh. watching them for 30 seconds or even a minute anyway listen tell me about this app and hand washing What, what what's the connection
1: yeah, well, very basic idea. Actually, Surewash was a company that was involved in training uh, healthcare professionals in general. They had these little kiosks set up uh, just to help train people how to wash their hands properly. Uh, this this would be, you know, nurses, um, sort of trainees, people working in in um, spaces that would have, that would be um, deep cleaned or disinfected. So what they've done with their AR app is they've come up with a way to recreate that environment through the medium of your smartphone uh, and give you a little prompt to uh, go, Okay, now begin washing your hands and then for as long as it takes. And then you are complete. There you go. They've just gamified the process just to make it a little bit novel uh, so you don't have to be bored when you're washing your hands like you are.
0: Okay, so they will kind of because I know when you when you when you to wash your hands, we just normally kind of you know you rub your hands together, or whatever. But mm-hmm. to give your hands a proper wash, you need to literally get one hand around the other thumb mm-hmm. and 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 vice versa, and then you need to get all your fingers uh, interlocked and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I believe, uh, and it was pointed out to me a few days ago by someone mm-hmm. I live with, who's female. <laughs> <laughs> That fingertips, Narrowing it down. <laughs> fingertips uh, are the things that you really need to concentrate on. And I never really thought about that before in the context of what's going on at the moment. And um, because we naturally touch our face and we usually touch our face with our fingertips and we naturally touch hard surfaces where nasty things could be living. And usually that's with our fingertips. Our fingertips are really what you need to concentrate on when you're washing your hands. And it's not something that I would say a lot of people do.
1: No, I'd say most people just go for, you know, the, the body, if you will, of their of mm. their fingers. But yeah, fingertips. And also, if you have long nails or nails you haven't looked after for a while, um, anything could have gotten under there. Also, if you wear a wedding ring, uh, bear in mind that, you know, rings can be quite sharp. They, they're also pretty good at picking up things. Mm. So uh, it might be a good idea to take off your ring while you're washing your hands, because I know a lot of people just keep it on.
0: OK, if people want to grab that app, uh, what's the name of it again to search for?
1: Yeah, Sure Wash. Sure, wash. All right,
0: grand. All right. Now, listen. now. Uh, thanks for keeping us up to date with the news this week, as always. <laughs> This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, Larry Page and Sergi Brin are household names. But what about the thousands of other company founders out there? Should we think of them as great men and visionaries or are they just grifters out to make a quick book for themselves? One man who has dealt with this question is writer and former startup advisor for McKinsey, James Stranko. He was in... Dublin recently for the Cult of the CEO event and sat down with Niall Kitson to share quite amazing thoughts.
1: One of the great quotes I came across when uh, preparing for this interview was one from the historian Thomas Carlyle. I don't know if you're familiar with his work but but he said history is is the story of great men and you know throughout history we've been able to look at what what constitutes a great man. Was it a politician? Was it a religious leader? Was, Was it a musician or an artist? Do you think we're now in the age where the E.L. is seen as the great man?
2: I think that's optimistic. Um, I think it's one of those things where the CEO is given a lot of power. The CEO is given a lot of exposure, and the CEO is given a lot of responsibility. Um, I tend to think that CEOs are not as long remembered as companies are, and a CEO's actions are remembered only in the context of a company's actions. I think that um, there are certain CEOs that you know run very large companies. That people remember, right? People remember Steve Jobs. People remember Elon. Elon musk people remember um you know people remember bill gates obviously um but these are i'd say these are exceptions to the rules because i mean you think about how many companies there are you think about how many large companies there are and i'm i'm not so optimistic that um those legacies will last as long as other leaders particularly political leaders
1: and do you think there are any uh sort of common traits between these uh, great leaders that that you've mentioned there
2: I think that, and the ones that I mentioned, I, mean, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of differences between them, but I think the common trait is that they had belief in an idea and they sold it successfully. Um, quoting another, uh, this came to mind the other day, maybe because I'm in Europe, but it came to mind a quote from Napoleon, um, that a, a, a leader is a dealer in hope. Um, and the idea that you have to be able to sell hope, you have to be able to sell the idea that what you're doing is important and other people need to buy into this idea and they will also benefit from buying into this idea. And so I think that somebody like Bill Gates, um, Has done that. And he's done that in his private life too afterwards. Somebody like Warren Buffett, if you're going back to a very, very well um, regarded American leader, investor, has also done that. And he's, on one side, reinvigorated investor led capitalism, and on the other side, been very critical of it. But at the same time, being very honest along the way. Um, And then Steve Jobs obviously inspired dozens, if not hundreds, of other entrepreneurs and leaders to do the same thing, to be innovative, to be unapologetic about their innovation, and to run with what they thought was right. Do you think perhaps there's
1: that danger then of being able to sell hope as opposed to being able to sell product? And I think that's an an error that seems to be made, particularly when you look at uh, Steve Ballmer succeeding uh,
2: Bill Gates, where he had an excellent salesman following up on an excellent visionary. That's correct, and I think that there's a lot of pressure whenever an excellent leader has to step down for whatever reason. The next person has to kind of take their shoes and and, and walk in them. It's very difficult, and so I think sometimes the the types of um, activity, the types of actions that they take to try and either replicate that success or to build on that success, um, aren't necessarily faithful to the the spirit of who came before. And I think that I think in particular with with tech companies and with, with startups, there's this sense that you need to sell the idea before you need to make the product work. And you also need to have a product that is, um, uh, more inspiring than profitable, um, or more scalable than profitable. And, and that, I I don't think that's a permanent condition for both the tech industry and for, um, you know, for companies, because there are, financial constraints, there are investor constraints, and money is not free forever. I think we're in a very interesting stage right now where money is very, very loose, um, and it's, it's tightening. And so we'll see whether or not that hope can still be dealt whenever you have to make your financial statements work. I think there's some uh, really
1: compelling examples of that at the moment, in particular when we look at Adam Newman and what happened with SoftBank.
2: I mean, I think that was a, a particular disaster that was perhaps... Of its time, in a sense, very of its time. It's a really, it's actually a really nice crystallization of all the factors. So, you know, maybe four or five years ago, you had this excitement about Saudi money, about Japanese money starting to kind of rush into um, the, you know, the U.S. Startup scene and international startup scene too, not just the U.S. startup scene, and show how much how much interest there was, how much excitement there was outside, and bringing a new source of capital in. Um, but is that money as strategic, or is that money as well sort of well positioned to uh, create the impact that a Silicon Valley venture investor would? Do they have the knowledge to actually know what they're buying? I think that's a big question, and I think what what happened with WeWork was almost a, a climax moment where you saw that money kind of chasing after ideas that, you know, may not have had that long of a runway if they didn't have the type of money that didn't ask the right questions. Um, And I'm not saying that venture investors always ask the right questions because I think sometimes, you know, they ask good questions or they get right teams or they kind of have a lot of faith in the team. And then, you know, there's obviously a model where they can lose a lot of money, right? Uh, And they they expect, you know, five or ten of their companies to succeed to a certain level. One in every 10 to give them a very, very big return and the rest to lose money. But when you're talking about the sums that you know SoftBank put in to a company that was not making money and had huge losses, then you get this sort of crystallization of all of the trends in the industry in one place. And then I think what's more interesting, and we can talk more about this, is that when you have to go to New York afterwards and list on the stock exchange, all of a sudden... The analysts that are reading your financial statements and the analysts that are looking at your company's projections are a lot more critical because those analysts are also looking at companies that have much slimmer margins, companies that are much more mature, and companies and other sources of um, of, of of investment returns that are you know that are that are as profitable or as uh, promising as what they're seeing in these you know highly valued startups with huge ratios and. That sort of does speak to the point of, you
1: know, uh, in Silicon Valley, maybe they're looking at growth over profitability. Absolutely, That maybe, you know, that, that is the, the I don't want to say unicorn, because that, that is, you know, d- different elements to it, but, but that is sort of the, the white horse, if you will, that look, we're
2: growing so much and, you know, down the road, we're going to be so profitable, but you've got to stick with us for the moment. We had a, um, so when I was working um, in the startup practice at McKinsey a few years ago, we put out a piece of research that was called Grow Fast or Die Slow. And it was kind of our mantra, which is you have to grow quickly or you're going to reach a plateau that over time kind of, um, say, peters out for lack of a better word. Uh, because you, if you're not growing fast, you're not going to gain the investment that allows you to keep growing fast. Um, and I think over over time, that, that mantra has changed changed because you find that if you're not generating revenue and you're not generating profitability, people are asking more questions than they did before because they're not willing to just invest in you forever and wait for that to happen. Um, There was a very interesting piece uh, in the New York Times last week about that dynamic Changing in the U.S. right now and changing very quickly, and particularly around the IPOs that have happened or not happened recently. Um, the most interesting recent one was a mattress company called Casper um, that people are looking at as kind of a bellwether of whether or not the um, you know the tech-enabled um, product industry or something that's as specific as mattress and, and sleep um, can can really be revolutionized just by a smart online platform. And I think investors are pretty pessimistic about it because their shares opened and lost value very quickly um, and have have sagged since it's been open it's not the matter of like what happened with Facebook and other sort of large unicorns that went to market where it just sagged and then it sort of grew after that there's a real fear that these companies are never going to turn a profit and if you're in the listed of the New York Stock Exchange and you have institutional investors that are you know making sure pension funds get 5% returns they're not going to put up with that And of course, you know, when something
1: like this goes badly wrong, attention immediately turns to the CEO. And I guess their their legacy, if you will, is is the culture that they create within a company. Uh, That will help them make the argument that there is profit in the long term. Have you seen any companies with a particular toxic culture where you'd be like, okay, look, their IPO
2: didn't make money and these guys are not long for this world? I, I hate to pick on Uber. I really do hate to pick on Uber, but I'm going to pick on Uber because I think that they're a really good example of this. Um, and I, I think that the, obviously the leadership with um, with Dara is very different than the leadership with um, with Travis. I think they're very different people, obviously, and they've done a very different job at, at projecting the company externally. But the fundamentals of the company, in a way, haven't changed because what you have is this, you know, very very heavily venture subsidized model of growth um, without profitability, you have this let me throw things at the wall and see if it sticks mentality of we're going to deliver food, we're going to deliver other things, we're going to have self-driving cars, oh no, they crash. Um, That that really kind of strains long-term credibility. And I think the culture that they have of, you know, we are the the preeminent provider of transportation solutions or whatever their mantra ended up being over time, it looks a lot weaker and it looks a lot sadder whenever you see that happening. And I think the markets where they've truly had to compete without the insulation of either lack of competition or of, you know, just being able to invest venture funding in it. I mean, think China think russia think um you know they pulled out of Colombia recently for a number of reasons and that was more political than anything else but think the think southeast asia i mean the major markets where they have expanded into they've retreated from because when they actually were hit with local competition that knew the market that didn't think that they um you know they were they were god's answer to a taxi ride um They had to actually face that, and every time that the economic pressures came down on them, um, they couldn't rely on that culture to save them, because it wasn't strong enough. And that, do you think, is a
1: fairly regular problem that U.S. startups find, is that is that scaling problem, and to think that, okay, this problem has been solved in the U.S. by us, clearly it's going to scale internationally
2: just as well. It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And I think American companies, in particular, uh, much more so than European companies, suffer from a lack of imagination on what's going to go right and what's going to go wrong when they leave the country. Um, small com- company- Companies that are sm- founded in small countries have to think internationally, day 1. If you're a if you're a company a B2B software company founded in Ireland, you're not going to get investment unless you can prove that you can expand quickly into other markets, be it the UK, be it into the US, whatever it is. And that's a good thing because it makes you think differently about the way that you do business from day one. I mean, I've done a lot of research on internationalization with a venture capital fund in the U.S., um, a former colleague of mine who is, a, is an investing partner there now, and we've interviewed a number of CEOs on their internationalization strategies and actually a lot of heads of international, too, on, on their strategies. And I think the thing we found is that um, companies used to not have dedicated plans to internationalization, so they would say, "Oh my goodness, you know, we have this online platform. And we've we have fifty power business users in Germany. We should just we should just go over there and do something in Germany." That might have been seven or eight years ago where that would happen. These days, I think companies are being a little bit more strategic about it, but it doesn't mean that they understand the dynamics of internationalization as well. There's one company that, um, it's a Canadian company, actually, that's done internationalization really, really well. It's called Shopify. Uh, I'm sure you've you've heard of it. You've, You've seen their growth. And I think that, I actually think that the fact that they're a Canadian company and not an American company has made them more sensitive to the idea that when they go somewhere else, there are subtle differences and subtle changes you need to make to make the market work. Um, Canadians are very good at that in the United States because they see the small differences um, that there are and they know that they need to adjust to to handle them. And so I think their internationalization has gone very well because they've been very strategic, but then also I think it's more about recognizing that The U.S. market is big, the U.S. market is successful, the U.S. market is wealthy, but it doesn't mean that the Swiss market or the German market or the French market looks like that. And if it doesn't look like that, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means it's different. And I think American companies sometimes look at that difference and say, what's wrong with them versus looks at that difference and says, how do I change to adapt to them? Uh, one final point that I think is quite interesting
1: in undercutting the myth of the CIO to a to a certain extent. Uh, sorry, the. the uh the myth with ceo is the role of the employee in becoming a brand manager and in you know potentially redefining the role of the ceo or the founder especially when you have options like Glassdoor, when you can go on and give feedback about the company that you're working with to, to what extent do you see founders and ceos becoming more mindful of the people that have working on them under them as ambassadors for their work as
2: much as their product I think they've become somewhat more fearful rather than more mindful. I think good, good managers become more mindful, but I think there's a level of I can be exposed now through social media channels. I can be exposed now through Glassdoor to some extent. I think Glassdoor is um, an incredible tool. I think that it's probably, uh, it's like TripAdvisor. You know, you get the people that want to get five-star reviews and the people that want to give one-star reviews. The people that want to give three or four-star reviews probably aren't taking the time to do it. Um, And so it sort of tends to the extremes. But I think it's created a culture where, um, you know, CEOs are very, uh, they're aware that there's a lot of, there could be a lot of criticism there's aware that there's there can be a lot of praise but they're probably not I don't know how sensitive they are to how they manage that and I think that's I, th- I think it's a challenge because also it's it's asynchronous because you're receiving feedback that's not real time you're receiving feedback on something that may already have changed um, and it's very hard to deal with I think like the traditional process of just Talking to people, having you know good levels of management, um, or you know if you're a flat organization, having mechanisms whereby you can give feedback that is not going to have any sort of retaliation associated with it, or is going to be seen as part of your development. I think those tools are far more um, effective and far more authentic than you know tools where you post something online or you sort of have something that's anonymous, because it's it's at the end of the day it's less passive aggressive. Uh, I think if you can have have a face-to-face conversation with somebody and tell them a legitimate grievance, I think you're going to invest more time into making sure that that grievance is well articulated and well thought out, and the other person is going to take more time in listening to it than just something that's anonymous and, and random. And that was
0: Niall Kitson chatting with James Stranko. That is it for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland uh, with all kinds of stuff on our website at techcentral.ie or listen to us every week online or Fridays on DAP Digital Radio with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thank you so much for listening. And of course, remember...